Hi, and welcome to the 40 and Infertile podcast. I'm your host, Victoria, at 40 and Infertile on Instagram. I'm a fellow IVF patient, and this is where I share with you my fertility journey in my late 30s and 40s, while also providing you information to minimize your fertility struggles later in life. Hey everyone, this is episode 16 and today we're covering donor conception. So I first connected with Dr. Tia Jackson Bay of Reproductive Medical Associates in New York on Instagram and we were brainstorming topics that we could cover on the podcast and she really felt like this topic of donor conception would be really beneficial for us, especially those of us who are over 40. So uh, she joins us on the show today. And in case you're new to the fertility journey or the IVF journey, um, let me kind of explain why uh, this might be important for us. So for those of us who are over 40, there's a higher likelihood that we may need the help of third-party reproduction like an egg donor um, because of our poor egg quality um, or because of our decreased egg quantity. So Dr. Amy, who's the egg whisperer, um, she says that your chances of getting pregnant after the age of 40 or around you know the age of 40 is about 5% or 1 in 20. So that means if you do an egg retrieval and you get 20 eggs, statistically speaking, we would expect one of those 20 eggs to be normal um, at that age. At 45, this decreases significantly and it's about one in 100, so about a 1% chance. So if you're struggling, you this may mean that you may need help from younger eggs and that's where um, the egg donors will come into play. Well, don't get me wrong, the there are women out there who can get pregnant at 40, 45 with their own eggs, um, but there may be some women who are not able to. The whole point of this is not meant to discourage you. It's just meant to educate you so you have an idea going into your egg retrievals if this is something you're struggling with. It doesn't make you totally abnormal. It doesn't make mean that you did something wrong. It doesn't mean that um, it's something that you have to be ashamed of. It's just statistically speaking, this is what we're looking at for people our age. Um, the other thing that this would be good for is if you've chosen to be an independent parent. So if you're over 40 and you're independent parent, uh, you may have the same struggles um, with um, needing egg donor, but um, you would also need a sperm donor. Or if you chose to be an independent um, parent and uh, you're a single dad, then you may need an egg donor for that. Um, so these are all really important um, topics to talk about. Same thing with same-sex partnerships. Um, you know, they'll need either an egg or a sperm donor as well. So, you know, there's many groups that could utilize this technology and this tool to help expand their families. So to help us navigate some of the complexities associated with this, um, Dr. Jackson Bay talks to us about third-party reproduction basics. Um, she also goes over the pros and cons to using potentially an agency or uh, a bank or unaffiliated donors. Um, and she also answers your submitted questions. So that's really awesome. Um, in general, you know the drill. The information provided today is for educational and informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. So you want to make sure that you consult with your own fertility doctor before choosing any medical therapies that may affect your fertility. 
Unfortunately, as you know, every person's situation is unique, so it is vital that you discuss your personal situation with your own fertility doctor to decide what is the best course of action for you. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, I would love, love, love if you subscribed and or followed. And if you left a five-star review or a written review, um, I also want to encourage you all to, um, keep submitting questions and keep giving me suggestions. Um, I really want to build a podcast that we can all learn and benefit from. So please don't hesitate to ask or make requests. Um, I just really, really want to thank Dr. Tia Jackson Bay again uh, for joining me and sharing all her knowledge. And I really hope that this uh, episode helps you guys on your donor conception path. Hey everyone, I have Dr. Tia Jackson Bay here with us today, and we are going to be talking about donor conception. So uh, thank you so much for taking time to be with us here today, Dr. Jackson Bay. Um, I'm so excited to have you here um, and talk about donor conception. Absolutely, well thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to participate. <laughs> so let's first start uh, with kind of how you came into the field of fertility. How did you make your way here? Oh, it's interesting. So I really didn't know much about the field um, before I was actually in medical school. And so um, as a lot of health professionals will tell you, some people come in knowing gung-ho what they want to do and other people kind of find their way as you're learning and going through different rotations. And so I was definitely someone who didn't think I was going to be in this field. I had a different <laughs> direction initially, but I was exposed um, through some work in medical school and I thought it was incredibly fascinating yet tragic that people um, had such a hard time building a family. And I come from a really large family. And so it, you know, I couldn't imagine not having that upbringing. Um, and, and here people were working so hard just to have, you know, the family that they wanted. Um, so I was incredibly drawn to the field. Um, over time, I knew that I wanted to work uh, primarily with women. I was very passionate about women's health and public health. And, um, and this seemed like a really interesting niche in terms of being able to work with women and couples. Um, and then also addressing this issue, which was kind of an intersection of gynecology and early obstetric care, surgery. Um, I really like to be able to have some counseling time in the clinic, but then also do procedures and surgery. So it was a great fit. Yeah. No, thank you for doing what you do. I mean, you help create families and that's so important. Um, so the majority of our listeners are about 35 to 45. So depending on our path um, and depending on, you know, some of our um, issues that we're dealing with, we may need to consider something like donor eggs or donor sperm. Um, I just want to start from the beginning. And so what is a donor egg? What is donor sperm? Yeah. So, you know, in our world, we call this kind of third party conception. Um, where you're using gametes from someone else who's not involved in your reproductive care. So either if you're a couple um, that may need donor eggs or donor sperm because of an issue um, just within your own reproduction, 
or if you're a couple that is missing one of these items in your uh, pairing. Um, also, you can imagine single women who are not partnered and maybe just need sperm in order to achieve pregnancy. And so, you know, this whole concept of donor um, reproduction or third party reproduction really just means that, you know, you're using gametes from another person. Um, many of the time is someone who you do not know, but it could be someone who is known to you under certain circumstances. Um, and you're using that to achieve pregnancy. So either using donor sperm or donor eggs, or even in some cases, donated embryos. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when would someone need donor eggs? So typically the reasons why someone would need donor eggs is either that their own um, eggs are not either available for reproductive use. So if they have already undergone menopause, regardless of age, or if it's someone who, um, you know, some women unfortunately have an issue where their egg production stops very early and that may, you know, look like menopause or that they actually don't go through, um, start to have their periods at all. Um, for certain other people, if they are in a relationship again that is lacking eggs. So, um, you know, two men who are in a relationship may be an example of someone who may also need donor eggs. And then, you know, amongst your listeners, I know uh, many of them may also be um, people who have tried to conceive and have not had success, um, either through IVF, um, sometimes their uh, embryos don't have any success in developing, or they may be older and at, be at increased risk of what we call aneuploidy, an abnormal number of chromosomes, which can increase the chance of pregnancy failure or pregnancy loss, like a miscarriage, or even in some cases, if they um, harbor a certain genetic condition that maybe they don't want to pass on to their offspring, then using donor egg may be an option in that way. Mm -hmm. And for those who maybe have also had cancer or something like that, like where they had to undergo chemotherapy, would you say that um, donor eggs may be an option for those folks as well? Absolutely. So if there is what we call like an iatrogenic risk or iatrogenic failure of your ovaries, either from having to have surgery to remove all or a portion of your ovaries or some sort of treatments like chemotherapy or certain medical treatments or radiation to the pelvis that, you know, unfortunately uh, resulted in the ovaries not functioning and not producing eggs, then those persons would uh, be benefit from using donor egg as well. Okay. And then, so, um, I know for me, I'm over 40 and so I have low AMH and I have poor quality eggs. So, um, one thing that has been suggested to me is to use, um, donor eggs in the future if I am not successful on my own. Um, but men don't necessarily have like an AMH that they can track. At what point for a male would you consider donor sperm? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a lot of different reasons why we would consider donor sperm actually for men. It's not necessarily um, 
as tied to you know women in terms of like age uh, there are definitely men who may be younger than you know your female counterparts who may need um, donor sperm you know for some men if their um, testes are not producing sperm either because the testes themselves have kind of failed to produce sperm they don't have the right um, kind of hormone receptors to receive the testosterone and, and which is needed for sperm production or if they have different conditions where the signaling from the brain to the testes is has not been able to um, stimulate sperm production then there may be no sperm there actually and so in those cases you may benefit from something like um, donor sperm uh, to conceive and so those are usually the, the most common ones is this there's no sperm or very low sperm counts or if there's any reason to suspect that, um, you know, poor sperm quality uh, may be contributing to either pregnancy loss or to um, the infertility overall, then there may be a role for donor sperm in those cases. Yeah. Um, and as far as, you know, like for me, when I think about these things again, because I'm 41, so I'm over 40 and these things are obviously, you know, on top of mind for me. But, um, when I think about these things, I think, well, what makes, at least from the female standpoint, what makes the donor eggs, it's say in my case, when I have a low AMH or whatever, um, better, is there an age limit for these donors, is there a certain time frame that they won't take donor or eggs um, from donors anymore? So the the what in general makes the increases the chance of success when you're using donor egg, it's typically the age of the donor, and so um, women who have. Um, reach their kind of reproductive maturity, but um, generally are less than, many donors may be less than about age 30, um, up to 37, I think, you know, in some donor programs they will accept. Um, and it's, you know, it sounds like not a big difference. Like, well, we use someone who has, you know, 27 year old or 25 year old, but you know, the fact is that they have more plentiful eggs. So if, you know, depending on how you procure the donor eggs, there just may be more eggs available for you to have embryos for success. And also there is a difference in the quality and the health of the eggs such that they have a decreased risk of, um, having an embryo with an abnormal number of chromosomes they're more likely to have an embryo with a normal number of chromosomes and just an embryo that progresses and develops um in the way that we anticipate you know to be more common amongst younger women so age is probably one of the most significant predictors of success when we're using donor eggs so again the majority of donors may be between about you know 21 and 35 and some places may have cutoffs of around age 31 or 32 um, but the age is, is a really significant part of the success okay and when and i haven't done the whole process looking into donors quite yet i kind of dabbled you know i look at banks and stuff and i kind of just see what's out there just to kind of see it is kind of a surreal experience trying to figure out like 
how to replace yourself. And I hate using that word replace because you're not really trying to replace yourself. Um, so I want to be careful in the language that I'm using, but I honestly don't even know what the process is like. So let's say, let's pretend that you have this conversation with your patient and you know, do you decide that this is the next best step for them? Or you both decide, you know what, I'm ready. This is good. What is, what happens next? So after you make the decision, you say, okay, we're doing it. Donor eggs. What's the next step? So one of the next steps may be looking into um, what route of donor egg, um, you know, how do you want to secure the eggs? There are, as you mentioned, there are banks that have donor eggs readily available because these women have already gone through a very similar, like an IVF or egg freezing process where they've taken their injections, the eggs have been retrieved, and then the eggs are stored in batches in these donor egg banks. And so that we call that process a lot of times frozen uh, donor egg. So in that regard, they're readily available. It may be cost, um, very cost effective um, because you're getting just a small allotment of eggs and it's available for you. The other option may be kind of maybe what you're thinking of in terms of choosing a person who's going to kind of undergo IVF on your behalf. And so we think of that as kind of like a fresh donor. And that means that they would be, you know, once you select the person who is your match, not your replacement. Yes, thank um, you. (laughs) But once you select that person based on a profile, you know, demographics, you know, phenotype, things like that, how they look, height, weight, ethnicity, race, even religion for some people. Um, And then that person would undergo the IVF on your behalf, go take the injections. And then once you retrieve the fresh eggs, then we would inseminate them with the sperm of your choice to create embryos. And so that can be a process that could potentially yield more embryos, say if you want uh, more than one child or if you're, you know, want to be able to screen the embryos for chromosomal issues or even a a genetic issue um, and just maybe need more embryos in order to do something like that. But uh, it can be a more expensive option. And, And for some people, it may take longer to find a donor through that route than a donor egg bank that maybe has a lot more options available. Mm -hmm. So are the fresh um, eggs, or I don't know what to call them, I guess fresh fresh donor, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what the terminology is. Um, But are those the one through the agencies? Is that, because I've seen some people talk about egg donor agencies and then egg donor banks. What's the difference between the two? Yes, you hit the the nail on the head. So the banks are usually uh, depots where donor eggs are already kind of frozen and ready essentially for you versus the agencies is kind of like matching you with that person. And so in in general, they have not undergone IVF yet. And so once you select them, once you make that match, then they would undergo the IVF and and continue on. So those usually uh, result in what we call fresh donor eggs. And you had mentioned a little bit about Um, ethnicity, religion, things like that, that might be important for some. So for me, I'm an Asian female and looking at some of the banks, I don't see a ton of available Asian females. So let's say I had trouble finding a match for me, you know, whatever my preferences were. Um, 
then would someone have more luck or better luck going, I don't want to say luck, but would they find um, their matches better by going through an agency because then maybe they have a larger pool to choose from? Or is that not necessarily the case either? Not necessarily. You know, sometimes one lucky thing with um, what we call the donor egg banks is they're kind of national, but you may want to look at where they're pulling their donors from. And so sometimes there's certain ethnicities focusing on the coast or larger cities may give you more options. And similarly with um, donor egg banks, some donor egg banks have evolved into kind of like a niche in terms of, you know, finding donors from a specific background or race or things like that, that could be um, very valuable to someone who has like a high priority on, okay, this is something that's important to me. And so that those are some of the kind of trade-offs. So it doesn't necessarily mean that one would be easier than the other, but you may need some flexibility in terms of kind of like looking around to see what's available for you. One thing that I think is important too is that you know, if you know and consider your sperm source, you be it a partner or a sperm donor, think of what the combination will look like together. And so the person may not need to look exactly like you because you still have to consider your partner. And so, you know, how, how does your partner's family members look? How do some of your family members look? Trying to look at, you know, childhood pictures and things like that. It may not have to be an exact replica, um, but think about, you know, someone from a similar background as you, maybe not the exact same you know, ethnicity um, and how that would come together with your partner in terms of, you know, some things that you would want maybe for your children. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that I think about too, and I'm sure this is a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because if I have it, I'm sure someone else will. That's <laughs> so okay. That's okay. <laughs> so once you select your match and let's say you find like since, you know, some of these banks are in, you know, different parts of the country. Let's say you find one that you like and it's in, I don't know, I'm going to make something up in Montana and you are in Utah. So do they just do they just ship it over to whichever clinic you're going to? Or do you have to, is the, does something have to happen between the clinics to make that happen so that um, you can get the eggs or, you know, if your donor does a fresh cycle or something, how, how does that work? How do you get those eggs to you? Yes. Yeah, so that's a great question. It's not silly at all. So if it's frozen, they can be shipped all over. Um, and it's very, um, you know, it's it's commonplace, you know, gametes are kind of shipped all over the country all of the time. And so we're very used to the processes that need to happen for that. Um, if it's a fresh donor in a different state or, you know, region of the country, you know, you do have a few options. They could do the cycle locally. And you could, you know, be present there to provide the sperm source or free sperm and send it to that clinic so that um, they can create the embryos there. And then you would have to decide, do you go there, you know, close to maybe a local clinic for, for your embryo transfer? Or then once the embryos are created, would you have the embryos sent to you? 
and or similarly you know I have seen some cases where the donors um, come to whichever clinic that you're working with uh, because as you you know may remember the, the actual retrieval process is you know the better part of two week period of time um, and so sometimes they're willing to travel maybe compensated for that time so that you can have it done closer to you and your embryos will be like in your home clinic mm-hmm. and as far as the egg donors go do they have a limit on like how many times they donate or do these banks or agencies put a limit on that that's a great question i'm not sure if there is you know kind of a a regulation in terms of how many times they're able to donate you know there's some data that suggests that it should be stopped at around six cycles per donor um, just because increasingly you know doing more and more egg retrievals may place a slightly increased risk of um, what we call borderline ovarian tumors Um, and so that was based on some older studies but I think just out of caution we said okay we'll set it you know around six cycles or so Um, And so I'm not exactly sure if the larger donor banks are strictly observing that. It's kind of more of a recommendation. Um, But, you know, in terms of how group practices may use that, you know, some recommendations from what we call the American uh, Society for Reproductive Medicine that's in there. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is kind of a hot topic, but the whole open ID versus anonymous donor. So what does that mean, open ID and anonymous? And so anonymous donors uh, typically means that, you know, they have uh, contributed either eggs or sperm um, and that their identity is close to you. So you may not have access to like names and city and state or um, even, you know, um, current pictures of what they look like. Um, and it also goes into, you know, contacting in the future um, versus, you know, some programs may have open ID where that information is available to you. Um, And so it's usually kind of the discretion of the donor. Some places may kind of specialize in more in that option more than others. Um, You know, and even with anonymous donors, you know, the goal is that enough information is obtained that, um, you know, I don't know how else to say it, but you shouldn't have much desire to figure out, you know, anything else. So you'll have, you know, these persons are always screened for, you know, a battery of infectious diseases, including sexually transmitted infections, but some others as well. Um, They have a thorough physical exam, um, you know, mental health exam, um, lots of different kind of checks. We go through their family medical history to make sure that we're not missing anything that could be transmitted to, you know, future children from this person. Um, And so there are lots of different kind of avenues in that way. I've even had instances where 
maybe a donor hadn't been screened for something that we know that the intended parents may be carriers of and now we have to kind of retroactively figure it out. And so through the banks, they may be able to contact that person and see if they're willing to be screened. And I've had success in that way, but it's still anonymous, you know? So just because it's anonymous doesn't mean that you may never have this information again in the future uh, or of some linking or connecting them. It's just kind of a way of, you know, maintaining their privacy and then also for the families and for, you know, the future children to kind of have their own privacy in a way. Yeah, because I know that there are um, a lot of concerns, at least um, that I've seen in the donor conceived community who are now, you know, adults and, you know, able to express how they feel. I've seen that some of them have concerns about, you know, their medical history and things like that. Are we doing a I don't want to say a better job, but are we screening more now than we did in the past? Is are, are, Do you feel like maybe from a medical uh, history standpoint, we're gathering more information from donors uh, now than we have? I think each year, you know, that passes, we're gathering more information about all of us. Like, think of all the things that we can test for now that probably we were not able to test for a decade ago. And so as there are advances just in the general population, um, you know, these banks are able to kind of expand that testing to their um to their potential donors as well. And so, you know, there's, luckily you'll know that kind of stuff in advance, you know, what has been screened for, what has not, um, what testing platform they use to do the screening or not. You know, there are some things that are kind of more regulated, family medical history and, you know, physical history and mental health is a big portion of it as well. Um, But more specific, you know, what we call X-linked disorders or autosomal recessive disorders um, may not, you know, all be uniformly tested. There's a few that's kind of like the core that are tested for. But as the technology is advancing in the general population, you know, it just takes a while for some of the um, donor agencies to catch up. And so I don't think that it's unreasonable to maybe, you know, if you've been tested and you've had this large expanded, you know, panel run and you want to make sure that the person is not a carrier for some rare thing that you are a carrier for, then you can always kind of inquire about that there's always the option to do genetic counseling to see okay even if this person wasn't tested what would be the likelihood that they're a carrier for this specific thing and that may help you to make your decision as well mm-hmm. so i kind of want to switch gears a little bit we've been talking i've been selfish and trying to find out more information about egg donors so um i want to be fair and talk about sperm donors um is is it a similar process looking for a sperm donor as it is for an egg donor or is it a completely different experience? In general, um, sperm donation has been around for so much longer that it's almost a bigger enterprise. Um, And the sperm is easier to procure. It is uh, a lot more readily available. And so in that regard, um, I would say, to be honest, it's probably easier and it's certainly cheaper um, than um, needing or using donor eggs or donor embryos. And so the process is similar in the sense that for anonymous donors, um, it's usually done through like a, a frozen donor bank. 
And so that means the sperm is already there. It's already been cryopreserved. Um, and it's a cryopreserved just being frozen and it's available to ship, you know, nationwide. Um, and then in some cases, patients may want to use a person that they know. And so we may call it like a designated sperm donor. So there's there's some nuances there is that they may know the person, but we still may you know, have to go through certain regulations, make sure that they're um, free of infectious diseases and, and that they're not at risk of having certain you know, other conditions, do the full screening that we would do for these anonymous donors. There might be a little bit more flexibility if they're known, um, but then we're also want to make sure that you know both parties are protected so what if they come up positive for something that you weren't aware of or what if they have um, a lifestyle habit or something that you didn't know like are they privy to know that and so that those are some of the things that come up when you're using a known donor but there are a lot of you know kind of checks and balances to make sure but you know that's a very real consideration for some people say they want to use you know a close friend or they want to use you know a family member of you know the opposite person's partner or something like that um, in order to just have more genetic ties and that's certainly possible that can be the same for egg donors as well right you can use a known egg donor but same process you would have to go through the same kind of screening and all those considerations absolutely yes okay um is there such thing as like a sperm donor agency (laughs) I don't know if that's a thing. That's a great question. I'm not exactly sure if there's a sperm donor agency. You know, with the pandemic, we did find that there was initially a shortage of donor sperm, both in the donor banks um, and the demand increased, which was something that was initially surprising, particularly in 2020, right? Because we were all locked down, everyone's home. And then all of a sudden the sperm banks are like, can't keep up with the demand. And everyone was like, what's what's going on here? Well, I think it might've been twofold. One is that people, you know, the donors were also on lockdown. So you're not, you know, freely going to donor sperm banks. You know, sometimes these places may be situated near, you know, local college campuses or places where younger men frequent and they weren't going into the campuses. They were all home and stuff like that. So there was just less supply. Um, Also, you know, people were home and maybe they were paying more attention to say like, okay, well, now is the time for a baby or for the second child or, you know, we thought we were going to put it off, but actually we feel comfortable, you know, going ahead to proceed now or just that time during lockdown, helping to realize like, wow, we we're, we're having an issue, you know, when you're kind of focusing on it a little bit more. And so there was this issue of demand. Um, and so there were some interesting articles that popped up as a result of the lengths that families were going to, to procure sperm. Um, and so there, you know, have always been kind of apps that are somewhat like a Tinder or, you know, a Bumble, but for sperm procurement. 
Um, and so that's not exactly something that, you know, I would recommend. I would rather it be, um, you know, someone who's been thoroughly screened and how you have honest, you know, information about their past history, mental health history, their family medical history, um, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, when I think of like a donor sperm agency, like not so much agencies, but there definitely were some enterprising apps, um, that came up and, you know, help people to kind of find their way to each other. Mm -hmm. But that was not regulated like a sperm bank would be regulated or an egg donor bank would be regulated, right? No, absolutely not. And that's this, the reason why, you know, <laughs> as a medical professional, I can't endorse the use of it, but it's existing. And, you know, I think it just shows how much of a demand there is for the services and that there's a need. You know, a lot of people don't like that, you know, procreation has to be so medicalized and can it just be simpler or it could be cost prohibitive for some people. Um, and so this was seen as a less expensive option, but there are big risks involved too um, with the, the lack of regulatory oversight. And so um, it's just something to be aware of, but beware actually. Oh, okay. That's so interesting. I had no idea this existed. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't know that was out there. So um, I'm kind of, I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of curious. I kind of want to see what it is, um, but I won't. I promise I won't. <laughs> yeah, no, you should, you should take a look. It's, it's very interesting. Um, there were some New York Times articles that I can think of um, that mentioned a few of these. There's a really great one just about um, the demand for donor sperm during the pandemic. Uh, so, yeah, you should check it out. Did you peek at the app? Um, I didn't download it, but I thought it was, I thought it was super interesting. And again, you know, from my standpoint, it just really drives home how important this is for people to be able to have their families, to build their families, you know, how prohibitive, um, this care can be if you don't have insurance coverage or if you don't have the resources, you know, to purchase each file of sperm. Um, and so th those are the things that really kind of resonated to me from there. And then also the, the danger <laughs> of, of all of this on screen. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You're like, I got to tell people about this. <laughs> have your patients come to you like saying that they wanted to try this or anything? No, I haven't had any patients oh, okay. who wanted to. I've had, you know, different kinds of situations, but nothing like that. Oh, okay. Well, maybe if they hear this, they'll know how you feel about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I'll tell them. I don't hesitate on that end. I've, I'm definitely not here to promote anything that's unsavory or... Um, you know, risky, to be honest. And so those are risks that you just may not want to take. You know, it may be okay for some people, but if you've made it this long and, and fought this hard, you know, you want to make sure that you're doing everything you can. Yes, totally. Um, what about success rates with um, either donor egg or donor sperm? Do you know, um, do people, what's the success rate for people who end up using donor eggs who, you know, say have a low AMH or poor egg quality? 
Um, so it's totally different per individual because it really depends on what is the root cause of your infertility. There definitely could be more things going on than just egg quality or egg quantity. And so that plays a role. We do know that, you know, especially for women who um, are, say, over 40 and may have a decreased chance of um, success with their own eggs, by using eggs from a younger person, which is from a donor, um, your chances of sex can be, you know, can really be significantly increased. And that's why, you know, I know it can seem really harsh um, to be even for it even to be mentioned that you may need donor um, egg Um, and but sometimes you know for better or worse I like to think about it in terms of what's the goal is the goal to be a parent you know kind of by any means or is the goal to test the the limits of your body because with autologous IVF, which is, you know, us using, trying to stimulate your own eggs and own ovaries, we're, we're just trying to see how, how much your body can do, how far we can push it, what different tweaks can we make um, to get your ovaries to do what we want it to do. But that might not be the best chance for success for you to be a parent. If you want the best chance for success for some people that might include using donor eggs. And so we may skip some of those steps or some of that fourth, fifth, sixth cycle of IVF, almost like a shortcut to get to being a parent sooner. And so that's what donor egg can can afford you. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we talked a lot about donor egg and donor sperm. Um, I want to touch on a little bit donor embryos. So where do we get donor embryos or where do we find or where when do we do you know a embryo adoption how do we get to that space and so there are certain um agencies who uh, may reach out to persons who have unused embryos. Some people are um, have additional embryos, maybe their family is complete, maybe you know for other reasons they know that they're not going to use these additional embryos and they don't want them to be, they want them to be used by someone. Um, and so there are lots of different options for embryo, what we call disposition, if you no longer want to use them. And so some people may opt to um, have them donated. And so um, in that that same process, the regulations a little bit different um, in that, you know, at the time the embryos were created, they were just creating them as kind of known partners, maybe between each other and may not had the full screening that a known donor would have. Um, and so in that regard, um, you know, there may be slightly more risk involved, but there's a lot of great, you know, family building from uh, embryo donation. And so it can be an option for couples, um, for, you know, anyone, for couples, for individuals, single people, same sex couples, um, older women or older couples. And it could be, you know, a really great chance for um, your own family building. There were an article, I believe a year or so ago at this point, um, of two of a a couple that adopted two embryos 
Um, these embryos were made in the early 90s or mid to late 90s um, and resulted into live births, but the embryos had been frozen for 22 and 24 years, respectively. Um, and so those were the longest, you know, that we'd had embryos frozen and resulted in a live birth. Um, and those were adopted embryos. And so it's, it's definitely an option that's available. Um, some people may feel that that's a route that works for them. Other people may still want to go donor egg or, um, or, or donor sperm route, but it's something that's available for sure. Um, one of the things that comes up for me, and um, I don't know if it's come up for your, um, from your patients as well, but I know for me when I'm thinking about uh, this stuff, I wonder whether I, I fear that I won't bond with, you know, uh, if I get an uh, egg donor and, and I carry the pregnancy, I fear that I won't bond with the um, child once it's once I've delivered or during the pregnancy. I won't feel, you know, that emotional um, experience that people talk about when they um, carry a pregnancy. What do you say to that? And what have your patients told you who've um, gone through either um, egg uh, donation, um, gotten an egg donor or used a sperm donor? Because the same kind of happens, I'm sure, to um, the um, the non-genetic parent, whether it's male, female or other, um, that may feel like they they may not have that bond because they don't have that genetic connection. Absolutely. This is 100% a very common concern. Um, and so definitely don't feel like you're alone or you're the only person who's ever thought this. Um, for that reason, a lot of times we will recommend for you to have, you know, uh, a session with a counselor, a therapist prior to even using, you know, donor eggs or um, donor embryos, just to kind of talk about those issues, talk about those fears and concerns and, you know, hear from someone who's in the field who can help you to work through it in advance. And I think going through that process for a lot of my patients in particular is extremely helpful. It helps them want to feel heard. It helps them to know that what they're feeling is not uh, weird or abnormal and so they don't have to feel guilty for it they don't have to feel shame it may allow them to have some openness with people around them either within the couple or other people so that they feel unburdened by this I think some of it is also fear somebody's going to find out that this is not my baby even if you feel like yourself you may bond and then the other parts are you know just you know, I say this kind of day in, day out, and a lot of particularly women feel that it's, it's not my baby. It's not my baby. Well, this baby is in your body and being nourished by your body and grows and moves in your body. You will have a connection to this child. There's, I mean, I think that there's very small chance that you know you go through that process and you don't feel connected um and so it's just something to remember something to hold on to but absolutely as part of you know um my patients will we make sure to kind of address some of these issues beforehand 
And I would recommend any person who's going through infertility to continue to work with therapists, even as a parent. These worries don't go away. And unfortunately, being part of this club that no one asks to be a part of, it puts you in such a unique um, space for anxiety, for depression, for trauma, for guilt. Um, And it's not magically resolved when you get pregnant. And so really continuing to work with someone through the pregnancy, through parenthood, uh, could really make a huge difference. Yeah, and I know we were talking about this earlier, and you've, you know, said some really nice things about certain families who have... um, conceived and delivered their uh, donor conceived uh, babies and are just like, I can't. And I've heard this from other people, too, where they just feel like there's this was meant to be and there was no other way I could ever think about doing this. Um, Do you want to share some of those thoughts and stories, too? Absolutely. I mean, I think when you're on this side of it, when you're on the side that doesn't have a big belly or doesn't have a baby in your arms, it feels so far away. It feels so far fetched. You know, I talk to patients all the time about how hard it is to kind of make that departure from the way you thought your family was going to be. You know, you know, even from just having an infertility diagnosis, you didn't think it was going to be this hard, take this much effort, cost this much money. Um, And so even in that, there's a lot of grief. Um, But, you know, I haven't met any parents yet that felt like they weren't so grateful or that they had regrets. You know, often the stories that are shared with me is I could not imagine my life without this little person. Or I can't believe it took me so long to do this because now I'm just so happy I would have done it so much sooner or something like that. Um, And so, you know, it's not to kind of sugarcoat anything or do the rose colored glasses but I hope that it's inspiring I hope that it gives people um just a different viewpoint you know like I said like you you think about this even when people are in depression when they're depressed it's so hard to remember like what it was like to feel good or or to think that anything could potentially feel any better than it is right now And so that's kind of, you know, sometimes what it is moving through this process of picking the donor, needing a donor um, to get to the part where you're finally um, doing well or you were able to achieve pregnancy and you were able to, you know, have a baby that comes home with you. Um, So much of, you know, the details of how you got there could fade away. It doesn't mean that it all goes away. To be honest, it doesn't. And so that's to my other point. But, um, you know, the families who go through it and have a good outcome, they're so, so grateful. Yeah. And I think the other thing to point out, too, is that one at one point in time when when they were doing this, you know, way in the beginning, um, like we didn't talk about donors we you didn't tell your kids you kind of kept that secret and i think that that um is difficult and i think that's one of the things that i think donor conceived some of the donor conceived community are struggling with is that part of them that they never knew about or they found out late it just feels like you know you feel betrayed but i, I think the way that um donor conception is 
approach nowadays is different. I think there is more of a discussion about, hey, these are the benefits of sharing this story with your child and not necessarily um, shame around it, like you said. What are your thoughts on that? Do you find that more people and and, you know, we talked about this earlier, too, with all of this genetic testing screening that is available to the consumer, it's hard to hide behind these things. And eventually the truth will come out, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, you know, my hope is that it becomes much more discussed. And so kudos to you for even having this as a topic on the podcast. Cause I think the more we talk about it, the more people are interested, the more people disclose um, either to their, you know, children or families or people around them about how they built their family and, you know, what the success was. Um, and I think just it's like so many other things in society, you know, the more we talk about it, the more visibility it has and more representation, it just becomes less taboo. And I think that's a big part of it, too. You know, we talked about shame and stigma and you know I think we have a lot to learn even from the adoptive community you know a whole generation of people who were adopted in that same way and maybe their parents were told not to tell them that they're adopted just raise them and think everything is okay until they get to college or need a birth certificate or you know take some sort of you know home DNA kit um, and realize something's different and so I think the same is going to be seen of donor conceived kids of this generation is the more transparency you know you have around their conception I think um, to be honest the kids will be all right Um, they may just have different ways of understanding um, and Every family is going to be different in terms of how or whether or not they choose to disclose. But I think at like a social level, population level, the more comfortable we come with it, um, the better it'll be for everybody, including the kids. Yeah, I agree. I think there's so much shame around, um, you know, sometimes, you know, even if you like miscarry, we don't even talk about miscarriage and so many people miscarry and we don't talk about it we think we're in this space by ourselves but i totally agree which is why i'm trying to talk about more of these topics so that there's less shame around it because i know as a female so much of our like womanhood is tied to fertility i i would agree the same with men their masculinity is tied to their fertility too and i think absolutely yeah and if I, i think if we take away that you know association that you know if if you need the help of an egg donor or a sperm donor it does not make you less feminine it does not make you less masculine um it just is a part of the process like you know if you needed to take blood pressure medicine it's not because you're less of a a male or female because you can't control your blood pressure on your own or diet or exercise or whatever um it's just another part of the condition where you need help so i don't i don't know what your thoughts are no i i totally agree with you and you know again this goes to you know having these open conversations you know really working to destigmatize you know i know a lot more celebrities have come forth with even needing IVF or using gestational carriers or adopting and you know even though those can be kind of like 
uh, romanticized versions because they're good outcomes, I think it still plays a role in kind of letting people know that it's out there and it's an option and people do it, you know, even in friend circles, religious groups, church groups, you know, sororities, um, soccer mom set, like, you know, you have to kind of talk about this stuff and let people know that, yes, there are multiple different ways um, to build in a family and, you know, sometimes treatments like IUI, IVF is part of it. Sometimes donor egg, donor sperm, donor embryo is part of it. Um, and so I think that's that's super important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so we have some uh, questions from listeners. Do you mind if we start with those? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, so this question uh, is, are fresh uh, fresh donor eggs better for women over 45? I'm guessing fresh versus frozen. Mm, I don't, I mean, I don't really think there's a huge distinction between fresh and frozen. Yes, if we had fresh, we would definitely prefer that, you know, donor um, frozen eggs. Um, one, they usually will send less. Two, they may have to be manipulated in a certain way just because they've been cryopreserved in the past. Um, you know, the most important thing is the capacity for it to turn into an embryo and do genetic testing if that's your interest. Um, and so I wouldn't say fresh donor eggs better, but are donor eggs in general, you know, appropriate for women in their mid 40s on? Absolutely. And so your chances of success in success being a baby that is in your arms um, is higher with using donor eggs than it would be with your own. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what is the most important or top three things to think about in donor conception? One, I think, is, you know, your own personal comfort with the idea. And so we talk about that a little bit. Um, Two is maybe, you know, what we discuss in terms of what are your preferences for the donor? What are things that you're looking for? Um, You know, we've talked about height, weight, ethnicity, uh, personality, job type, um, you know, region of the country. I've even had some patients like, oh, I'd love to have a donor who's from, you know, this town close to where I grew up or, you know, these these other kind of um, things that may be important to you. So that would be another one. Um, And I think last would be cost because it can be um, costly. It may not be covered by health insurance, even if you have fertility kind of related insurance. And so, you know, if this is part of the plan for you um, to really kind of sit down and think about, you know, what's affordable, what may be some more affordable options, um, what are, how are you going to make this happen? Okay. Um, can women that have biological children then go through uh, early menopause or primary ovarian insufficiency use a donor egg to expand the family? Absolutely. So those are, you know, 
one of the significant groups of people that may benefit from donor egg someone who goes through early menopause early menopause being you know total stop of your periods for a year before age 40 and um, primary ovarian insufficiency or POI is kind of along that line where you know the ovaries start failing before age 40 and um, you know to a certain degree you know you can start the menopausal transition in your 40s for some women it may be more common towards your late 40s but certainly after 40 it may be you know on the continuum of normal but before that age it may not be and so for these women who you know if they've had a child in the past that's great if they have not or if they're wanting to expand their family further donor eggs may be a great way to do that okay um, how should I prepare to be a donor recipient using a donor egg? Um, mostly the preparation is very similar to the things that you would do if you were going through your own IVF cycle. So maintaining overall health, um, you know, making sure that you're a healthy weight for your height, make, watching your diet and exercise, you know, controlling any chronic medical conditions that you may have, like high blood pressure, diabetes, even thyroid conditions, things like that, the things that help you to be healthier during pregnancy. And then specifically, you know, in a cycle where you may be preparing for embryo transfer, there are lots of different ways to do that. But essentially, we'll want to make sure that the uterus is healthy and so that there's no um, issues, you know, affecting what we call the cavity or the inside of the uterus where the pregnancy would grow. Um, and that may, you know, um, require like special imaging either with. Um, a hysteroscopy where we look directly inside the uterus or with a saline infused sonogram where we use water to kind of look inside with the ultrasound um, and just making sure that things are, you know, is in as good of order as they can be prior to embryo transfer. And so, you know, in order to be the best recipient, I usually just think about, you know, things that are good for overall um, preconception or pre-pregnancy health, taking your prenatal vitamins, you know, just being overall very healthy. And then in this cycle, maybe where we're preparing to do the embryo transfer, those are the other considerations more focused on um, the uterus. Um, does blood type matter from the donors like for rh factor or anything like that um for the rh factor it's that's a good question i can't remember particularly if we match up in that way um but you do want you know if you're someone who's rh negative if there's a potential for the child to be RH positive, we just want to be really careful about um, any bleeding or anything uh, during pregnancy to make sure that there's not sensitization of the mother to the RH antibodies. Um, and so if there is evidence of bleeding, we want to treat with something called Rogam. So I don't think it would preclude you from, you know, selecting a certain donor or anything like that. But if there's an RH negative woman and she has not been exposed to the RH antibodies, we just want to kind of continue to protect her through each pregnancy. Because that can happen even without a donor anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Uh, do you have an opinion about using donor eggs from a friend? 
Yeah, so I think even though it can seem um, very altruistic and like something that any bestie would do for her best friend who's in need, I think there could be, you know, much bigger kind of ethical considerations in terms of, um, you know, how you may feel in this moment may not be how you feel in a few years or how close you guys are. What do you tell the children? Um, what do you tell your respective families? Um, you know, other issues could come up. That person has a spouse or does not. Or, um, you know, how is it all disclosed? And so it's, it's not to say that it's impossible. Um, people do it between friends. They do it with it between family members. Um, but again, there would definitely be a recommendation for some counseling on the front end of both parties, of the egg donor and then the egg recipient. Um, and is there an increased risk of autism using donor sperm? It's happened to two out of three friends. The risk of autism um, isn't as closely linked to donor sperm if the sperm donor is um, is younger than 50 or even better, younger than 40. Um, autism is actually a multi kind of factorial disease and tends to be, you know, more sporadic. But there can be increased risk of um I would say, I guess, autism spectrum from different, um, from really from having, you know, a father who is infertile. Now, if they use donor sperm, that should overcome that issue. Um, you know, some of the handling techniques that we use for embryos, you know, can increase the risk of certain disorders, not autism per se, but again, it's such a big umbrella term that it's hard to know, um, you know, what the listener means in that sense. Um, but overall, it's, it's safe to use. It's very well tolerated. There may be some other factors there that we just don't know about. How successful is it for a 44-year-old with adenomyosis to get pregnant using donor eggs? It's not impossible. <laughs> and so, you know, it, there may be some challenges due to the adenomyosis, but, you know, like many things in the infertility world, they're not all created equal. Um, and so I can't give a number on success, but, you know, if, if the prior, maybe they had issues before with embryos not taking, um, if there was suspicion that it was an egg quality issue, then using donor egg will certainly increase their chances. If there's an issue um, at the level of the uterus from the adenomyosis, sometimes there are different kind of preparations we can use to help with that. Um, it's not always 100 percent, but there's there's no reason to think that, you know, you would not have success just based on the, the factors that you mentioned. Yeah, because with the adenomyosis, that is primarily an, a potential implantation issue, mm -hmm. correct? Because mm -hmm. the be. uterus isn't it doesn't necessarily mean that the embryo is bad unless you have two unless issues. Two things going right. right. So that's why it's so okay. sometimes can be a little difficult to answer these questions. I know everybody yeah, yeah. really wants like a second consultation. I know, <laughs> I know, I know. Be, I totally get it. There might be more to the story than you yes. know, can get in just a little yes. snippet. Yes, but just in case like some people don't know or understand that, um, you know, for some they may not know that the adenomyosis primarily, you know, maybe um, 
because maybe it's confused sometimes with endometriosis where it maybe mm-hmm. can affect egg quality where you have a little bit of both a uterus issue right. and an egg issue right. um so i don't i don't know if that's what they mean I, i'm speaking for this person but, um i'm just <laughs> trying to think out loud in case there is some questions about it um this next question um how much medical history about donors or future sharing of medical information do you get? For example, if the donor subsequently develops Alzheimer's, would you ever find out? So they're not obliged to report back to us and tell us um, in that way. And if you think about it, most don't, it would be such what we call a long lead time from when they were a donor to when, you know, typically they would develop Alzheimer's that we wouldn't know. Um, I don't think that it would be much different than, you know, becoming a parent and then in the future you develop Alzheimer's. It may not be much difference at a population level. If there are um, issues amongst the offspring, from a certain donor. Now, these would more likely be kind of childhood illnesses, something where there's a shorter time. Um, They may come back to um, the agency and, and, you know, kind of born, um, and we would kind of know that in a a faster sense, but something like Alzheimer's would be a little bit different. I think that would be, you know, kind of far into the future and we may not have that information. But if there was like, say, a family history of it or something, then you would be able to family history. They should disclose that. And that should be part of the profile. Okay. And then uh, this question is, are there any pros and cons to donor eggs, donor sperm or donor embryos? Well, they kind of use for different reasons or indications. As I mentioned, you know, sometimes people use donor embryos in a sense that Um, It can be altruistic. Sometimes it can actually be less expensive than going through donor egg if they're doing it through, you know, certain kind of um, religious or ethical organizations um, that can kind of match or pair them in that way. Um, And then, you know, the difference between using something like a donor embryo and, and donor egg with donor egg, if it's important to you, Um, you know, may have the genetic material from at least one parent. And so, you know, maybe that is, you know, more desirable for some couples over using a donor embryo, which does not have the genetic information from or uh, genetic material from either parent. Um, Some places don't participate in donor uh, embryo programs. And so that could be limiting for some people and donor egg may be easier to procure. And then for donor sperm, it just depends on, you know, um, what maybe some of the medical issues are, what the nature of the relationship is, Um, you know, single women who may not have any other um, reproductive issues and they just need sperm versus a single woman who's maybe older may need donor sperm and donor egg well maybe they would look into donor embryo and see if that's a better option for them or they can go donor sperm and donor egg route and i've seen all combinations of it yeah i think you you had mentioned earlier one of the benefits is that the intense screening that goes through with the donor egg donor sperm and then a less intense screening unless i don't know if these agencies do additional screening or anything 
like look into they, once they accept the embryos do they do additional yeah, oh, they, okay. they do they may go back and you know and uh, there's a basis for accepting it kind of acts some information but it's kind of about the time when it's in, when the embryo is um, donated and it doesn't always reflect you know what was known years prior or um, infectious disease states years prior they might so there may be some unknowns there and so you can get testing kind of at that time which is helpful but it's a little different in that way than if you did donor sperm or donor egg okay um now if people want to connect with you if they want a consultation if they want to ask you more questions how do they connect with you how do they reach you where they where can they find you well, absolutely. Well, I'm a physician at um, Reproductive Medicine Associates of New York or RMA of New York. And so if you just go to rmany.com, you can uh, book appointments there. It's just not an issue. I primarily see in-person patients in New York City um, and in, you know, the greater New York area, what we call tri-state area. Uh, but I do also see some patients via telemedicine and we're doing more and more of that since the, you know, pandemic. Um, and so that's an option as well. So they can always book directly through the website, um, you know, just for social media engagement. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Tia Jackson Bay. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for being here with me tonight. It's super late where you are. So I'm like, I'm glad you had dinner. I'm glad you were able to have something to drink after work. So thank you so much for being hydrated and fed <laughs> and making it through this late, late call with me. I'm, I'm so, so grateful for your time. I'm grateful for your expertise and sharing everything you know about the subject. I think it's super important and hopefully you'll come back again in the future and we can talk more about um, other things that can be affecting people in this age group. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I hope you found today's episode helpful. If you want a question or topic covered in future episodes, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at 40 and infertile. Make sure you hit the subscribe button for alerts and new episodes, and I hope to see you back again soon. Bye.